have you heard about Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me fill you in on a few things. Like first and foremost, it's free. And there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Then Anchor is going to distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on multiple platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and so many more. Even better, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And it's so easy, even somebody like me can do it. Now download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And I know you hear me. Are you interested in being a voice actor? Or are you already a voice actor wanting to level up your career? Then my voiceover coach can help. Elise Bowman and I have been working together and she has helped me take my game to the next level and find a whole new confidence behind the microphone. Go to EliseCoaches.com. That's E-L-I-S-E Coaches.com. She's a results-driven voiceover coach who works with you whether you are completely new to voiceover or you're a seasoned professional. She focuses on three areas. The craft of acting, the technical side, so she'll help you set up a home studio and you're going to be surprised at how inexpensive that can be. And the business side, you'll learn how to get a demo produced, how to submit to agents, and how to market yourself. The most fun part of it for me has not only been finding that new confidence, but also finding new things I can bring to characters for animation and video games. And like I said, just go to EliseCoaches.com. That's E-L-I-S-E Coaches.com. And remember... I know you hear me, and I want to hear from you, so let me know if you have any questions about my experience with Elise. Remember to connect with me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, at the Flynn Hendricks. Here we are again, another awesome week on the I Know You Hear Me pod, and I am back with a huge guest. Our guest today has been involved in so many voiceover projects, and a lot of them are ones that I actually grew up as a fan of. You'll know him as the voice of Deborah on Dragon Ball Z, along with other voices. He's been in Smite. He's been in Borderlands. He's been in Yu Yu Hakusho. He's one of the ultimate gifts for me to have as a guest on here, and I'm happy to have Rick Robertson on the show. Rick, how are you today? I'm fine, Flynn. How you doing? Man, I'm doing great. Honestly, better than I deserve. It's great. I got to give a little shout out here and thank Elise Bowman, my voiceover coach, for actually getting us connected because I never knew that it'd be possible to have you as a guest, and she suggested it, and man, the ball just started rolling from there. Well, there's very few things I wouldn't do for Elise. She's just an awesome person. 100%. percent good about her. Uh, she's so talented. She and, really is. Uh, I'm so grateful for her work with me. You know, I mean, that's really how I feel, too. Absolutely. And I know she speaks so highly of you in our sessions together. And I know, like, half the time she's wrapping up from doing something with you as she's coming into a session with me. And it's just like, man, ah, I can't even imagine what that's like just getting to see you two guys work together. Well, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. And and again, you know, over the years, you develop kind of a rhythm and a shorthand. And Mm -hmm. it's a lot of fun with her. And just like the voiceover sessions I do, man, I can only imagine... I'm kind of curious because I don't really know the backstory. Well, tell me more about you first because I'm, I'm kind of jumping the gun if I ask that question. I know we talked a little bit the other day. We kind of have a somewhat of a kindred background with wrestling, and I didn't know that about you. So We do. We definitely do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was a 
a wrestler in high school and college. Mm-hmm. I guess at the end of my sophomore year in high school, screwing around with some guys. It wasn't really, you know, we made up stories later on, but basically it was just, as I like to say, we were learning how to drink. Accidentally, I got a buck hunting knife through my arm. Man. Which is, uh, really beyond description. I mean, and as I, I think I was telling you the other day, I had my life saved because that happened at a veterinarian's house mm-hmm. uh, who happened to specialize in large, dumb animals. And that was certainly me. <laughs> and if you're ever in that position, and God, I hope you're not, he used uh, masking tape as a tourniquet and, you know, kept wrapping it around my arm and wrapping it around my arm. So I had several surgeries. That was kind of how I spent my summer vacation. Oh, man. Somehow, I was just crazy enough to get the doctors to sign off on a thing that allowed me to wrestle again. So my last two years of wrestling were basically spent uh, one-armed. My dad had worked for 3M. And mm-hmm. so they had a special tape that stuck to itself, which is now very common, but at the time was very expensive, and we couldn't have gotten it if, if my father hadn't worked for 3M. So we, you know, every practice and every uh, match, I had to wrap my fist, you know, into this nub, as they called it. And of course, I'd always make guys shake my hand with that. Right. You know, like I wouldn't <laughs> put them the right hand; I'd make them shake the nub. You know, if we should always gross them out, you know, and put them on the thing. Because it's all psychological. Oh, of course. Exactly. You know what I'm talking about. You're a wrestler, right? Oh, yeah. You know, I was always trying to get any advantage that I possibly could because I had one arm. You know, the funny thing is, and again, you'll appreciate this, they always went after my bad arm, which I thought was stupid as hell because I can't use that arm. So I always had them because while they were going after the bad arm, I had them, you know, (laughs) right where I wanted them. So, you know, it turned out pretty good. It's like you read my mind on that question because I've heard stories of people that got hurt and, you know, they either made that the injured limb the target or just for whatever reason strayed away from that. So I wasn't sure what the dynamic was there, but. Always make it the target. I remember so often guys would go, watch his legs. Don't take your eyes off his legs. <laughs> but they're already zoned in on that injured arm and it's just like, uh, too late. Got you now. Well, I learned that trick because when I was a sophomore, Believe it or not, the guy who was state champion was a guy named Shane Johnson, and he had had his throat slashed, okay, in a, in a gang fight of some kind. Oh, man. And so he had this scar, you know, all the way across his throat. I could not take my eyes off it. And so naturally, since you couldn't take your eyes off his throat, he was going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't look at all the things you needed to look at, like his arms and his legs. You know? I can't even imagine. I stared at his throat right until he clobbered me, you know. <laughs> So is that like a is that like a rite of passage down there for like if if you want to wrestle you've got to have some kind of brutal injury with a knife or it does, it does seem that way but no Man. that's not actually what happens. So I gotta ask not not to make light of it but what hurt worse you know like going through the surgeries going through the procedures or getting that duct tape taken off of you like I just what I'm gonna tell you is funny and incredibly politically incorrect have at it yeah this this takes into account my age. Okay. Back when this happened, there was no political correctness. And I went to a place called Deep Ellum, which is near downtown Dallas. Mm -hmm. And I went to a place called Stump Stock Manufacturing. And it's for people who had had amputations. Right. That was literally the name. And it's still on the building down there today, if you want to see it. It's Stump Stock Manufacturing. And so I had to make this special brace pad for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that kept me from being injured, but it wasn't hard to take on and off. The hardest part of the whole deal, believe it or not, and I just happened to have it over here. I'll have to show this to you. Please do. Tell. 
I had to be shocked 10 times on each muscle in my hand three times a day by 67 and a half volts. See if I can find this? This was the box. Yep. One of these, so they could complete a cycle, was put on the base of my back, and the other was on the muscle in the hand that they were exercising Mm because I couldn't feel my hand. To do that for two years, believe me, you hate it. And one time, I got a lot of guts, and my mother was doing it. This is this is how you get cured, by the way. If you have a mother like mine, <laughs> she would shock me, like I said, and it just you know it hurt. I won't lie to you. You know what I mean? You're, you're getting shocked by sixty-seven and a half volts, right? So again, that happened three times a day, ten times on each muscle for two years. Oh man! Now about halfway through. I did the big dramatic high school thing where I took the box and I smashed it against the wall. And I said, I'm never doing this again. And my mother never said a word. The very next day, I got up. She had a brand new box. And she goes, are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, what the hell? <laughs> oh, man. So that, that's, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. That was the hardest part was the rehab. I can and only imagine. Actually, I'm going to ask you some questions about that, but we're going to take a pause here for our sponsors, and we'll be back in just one second. If you love anime like I do, I've got a YouTube channel just for you. My voiceover coach, Elise Bowman, is an anime voice actress who interviews her fellow anime voice actors. Elise is an actress, TV host, and the voice of Pan on Dragon Ball GT, among other characters. She's got a YouTube channel, Anime Adventures with Elise Bowman, and on there she has over 100 videos where she has interviewed voice actors, Power Rangers, and even a few professional wrestlers, and all that sounds right up my alley. And there's a lot of other people that she's interviewed as she travels the country going to comic cons and different recording studios. Elise also features actors from the entire Dragon Ball franchise, My Hero Academia, Naruto, and so much more. And on top of that, There are exclusive panels that are only available on this channel from events like KameaCon 2, Con Live 2021, and so many more. You've got to check this out. See and hear voice actors behind your favorite characters and from your favorite anime shows. Go to youtube.com slash anime adventures and let me know what you think. Follow her on social at Adventures Anime and at Elise Bowman. She loves chatting with fans of anime. Hey, I know you hear me, and guess what? Elise and I want to hear from you, too. Connect with us. Thanks again to the sponsors. We're back here with Rick. Now, Rick, you were talking about the rehabilitation process right there. After the surgeries, after the shocking, like, what was your mindset like in all that? Was it kind of like just the motivation to get back and start wrestling again that kept you going? Was there like a down phase and all that? How was that for you? No, I, I think it's uh, it's kind of like a broken marriage. You know, at first you get very bitter. Right. <laughs> I remember there was a tape called The Best of the Best of Merle Haggard, and I think I wore that smooth. I think I just wanted to get back to wrestle so much. Yeah. You know, it really did. It was it was my whole focus. What it made me do was, I think, probably get a lot more lethal than I ever would have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. There was a period I remember for like, uh, I want to say 16 matches where nobody went into the third period with me. Wow. I, I was going to kill you if I <laughs> yeah. could. I know for sure it changes the mindset, especially if you go in with just any kind of injury. I know, like, you obviously, like, it's somehow beaten into us, whether by a coach, by somebody around you, just push through, you know, keep going. And that does change your mindset. It does make you more intense. It's like a caged animal almost. Well, I'll give you a great example. I did a paper one time. Mm-hmm. 
when I was in college on super athletes. And one of the biggest and best ever, I'm sure you've heard of him, was Dan Gable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Dan Gable was probably the greatest wrestler in my mind of all time. Mm-hmm. And I actually got to meet him at a wrestling camp in Stillwater, Oklahoma. This guy could bend a quarter with his fingers. Yep. Not that. <laughs> you know those push-ups you do where you're like on your head and you're against the wall and you're pushing your body weight straight up? Mm-hmm. He did 35 of those while having a conversation like you and I are having right now. He was never out of breath. And the reason was, and this is horrible, 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 but his sister was raped and killed in their house when he was in their living room when he was 12 years old. And so it was an incredible, you know, trauma. Okay. Absolutely. Well, he said to his parents who wanted to sell the house naturally, that no, they took away my sister. They're not taking away my house. And he moved into her room. And in all of wrestling, he is the only guy to ever uh, go through high school, college, and the Olympics basically undefeated. He lost one match, which was his last college match. He is the only guy I know to ever wrestle through the Olympics unscored on. Think about that. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. oh my God, that's um, that's unbelievable. I mean, just undefeated, unscored on. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like insane. The in the world. And so what I found is that these super athletes, it all had a common childhood trauma, whatever that might be. Like Joe mm-hmm. Namath's parents uh, divorced when he was five and Johnny Unitas' dad had died when he was 12. Suddenly, you know, I mean, it's just all these different athletes had something like that. That always encouraged me. I mean, you know, cause I understood there was a kind of a fire in the belly situation. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, that, that's stuff that doesn't really get talked about because you still hear about these feats of strength and all these different records that Dan Gable had and all these other athletes, but you never hear about the trauma that kind of sparked the fire for all that. And that oh, that just paints it in a whole new light right there, too. Yeah, and you see that, you know, like a lot of times some of your funniest comedians come out of the worst possible situations. Mm-hmm. You can go almost person by person, you know, but everybody knows their own truth. Right. And, and everybody, I think, you know, has something in their past that motivates them for their future. Absolutely. And it's almost like a coping mechanism to hide that trauma and keep you going. Very much so. That's amazing. Like just I I just learned so much right there. Like I said, you hear you hear all this talk about these people, but there's still so much left to learn. That's amazing. Oh yeah. You know, it transferred over into I guess what people would like to hear us talk about, which is voiceover. Absolutely. And that was my next question. What led you from wrestling to getting into voiceover? What kind of got your interest there? I worked a day of construction and it changed my whole life. (laughs) I can only imagine. From now on, I'll make a living with my mouth. (laughs) I don't want to do this. I don't want to lay some in anymore. Anyway, it reminded me, I remember uh, I had a disc jockey who was a big hero of mine named Ron Chapman. Mm -hmm. I remember he spoke at my high school. And, and I went to visit him at the radio station. I said, Mr. Chapman, how can I be a disc jockey like you? And he said, you'll never be a disc jockey like me because you're from Texas and you have a Texas accent. You can't lose that. Most people cannot get rid of their Texas accent. And so, no, you're, you're never going to be a disc jockey. So uh, when I was the number one disc jockey in San Antonio, I sent him a copy of my ratings. <laughs> Later on in my career, I actually ended up working for him. Really? Yeah some afternoons for him on kbil what uh, was what was his attitude like at that point like was he was it well i'm glad you know like, i i'm glad what i said worked and motivated you was it like kind of backpedaling or just like it never even happened 
never even happened. And I say that, it was very funny. I remember some point vindication or feeling some vindication because an airplane had crashed and I immediately pulled all the airline commercials, you know, so that they wouldn't run in the, in right. the aftermath of that. When I did that, he wrote me a note. And I still have it. He says, uh, Rick, you are real good, underlined real like several times. And he goes, just wanted you to know that I know, RC. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciated that. I really did. Man, I can only imagine. It's kind of like that justification. Speaking from like childhood experiences, the justification you want but that never comes or the acknowledgement of coming full circle. Oh, yeah. I remember the first impression I ever did. Mm -hmm. John F. Kennedy, the unluckiest comedian of all time, was a guy who did an album called The First Family. And this was right when Kennedy was president. And the comedian's name was Von Metter. And he was the hottest comedian in the country. And then Kennedy got assassinated and his career bye-bye overnight because he did this great Kennedy impression. My dad had the album and I'm five years old and I'm listening to it. And so, you know, I'm like, you know, that's right. It's uh, time for some uh, touch football in the clam teata. And uh, Mr. Khrushchev, would you please get your shoe off the table? And so I'm Oh, that's amazing. Well, as a five-year-old, it gets a lot of attention. Absolutely. You know? you got to hear this kid do the president. He's really good. You know, later on, your voices say things to girls that you would never be able to say. Bogart could always do the talking for us, say things that I never could. You know what I mean? Like, right. I'm sorry I had to slap you, sweetheart, but you became hysterical when I said, no more. And the other, what was the other one? He goes, names are simple. I never met one that didn't understand a slap in the face or a slug from a 45. You know? I mean, it was like all this horrible, politically incorrect stuff. The stuff but, you'd never say in real in real conversation. But you could say things to girls, not like that, of course. Right. I'm just saying, you know, but you could, you know, you could ask a girl out as Bogart. One of my favorite things I was ever able to do was I went to a frat party in college one time and I met this girl from a sorority. And it was a costume party, and I was Humphrey Bogart. So the entire night, I never broke character. Nice. Ever. Ever, ever. And I was very proud of that. And the next day, I called her, and I said, you know, hey, it's Rick. You know, you want to go out or whatever? She goes, who is this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah, she had no idea who I was, so I had to do Bogart for it. Oh, yeah, okay, sure, I'd love to go out. Of course she said yes. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a shame if you had to say no. You know, I think you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. But he was looking at you, kid. It was really funny. I love it. But yeah, no, I think that that was part of my inspiration, getting back to what I was talking about, because mm -hmm. everybody has probably had this experience. You, me, if you're getting into voiceover, you've probably had this experience, where the teacher says, Telling jokes is fine, Mr. Robertson, but you'll never make a living doing it. Now get back to your math. You know, we're yep. funny voices is fine, Mr. Robertson, but you'll never make a living doing it. Get back to your math. You know, again, if you achieve any success, you always go back and let the teachers know. You see a lot more stories about stuff like that now. Like there's all the stuff about Steve Harvey and the teacher that told him he'd never be on right. TV or whoever it may be. It's like everybody that's made it to that level has that story now. Oh, yeah. I remember Mrs. Branch, my seventh grade uh, math teacher, she would say, she goes, Mr. Robinson, you know what osmosis is. That's when they put a carrot in water, and it just absorbs that water. 
don't you wish you could sit on that mathematics book and just absorb that information? <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot, lady. Appreciate it. <laughs> that sounds like my sixth grade math teacher. Okay. Right. You can't heckle teachers, really. They don't let you do that. No, not at all. But, but you can get even with them if you do a really good impression. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you can. Man, if only I could have done that back then, though. Well, I think that's the first thing you do. You Generally, you know, is you find the people in power. Yeah. Learn to do their voice. I mean, it, it all comes from people watching. It all comes from experiences. So it's something that I've, I've learned a lot more with Elise or a lot more in depth. You know, like, it just adds more realism and more characteristics to just three lines on a script or whatever may help bring that character to life. It's just all those experiences all become so valuable at one point or another. I was so fascinated, I remember. One of my favorite movies of all time is a movie called Lonesome Dove mm -hmm. with Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Duvall. Yeah. In Lonesome Dove, Robert Duvall plays this incredible character. Mm -hmm. I remember him saying uh, at one point, he's talking about uh, uh, Ricky Schroeder, who was a young man at the time, and he's saying, Woodrow, you ought to let that boy listen to me talk. That's the only chance he got for an education. And Tommy Lee Jones goes, what kind of education is that? <laughs> he just couldn't believe it. <laughs> but the funny thing is, I actually met this guy in Oklahoma who was an old rancher. And Robert Duvall had built that character on him and his mannerisms and his wow. voice intonations. And it was just dead on. It was exactly like the guy talked and moved and, you know, how he'd have his hand like this. Yeah. That's right. But he goes, goes I won't say I cheated and I won't say I won't. But a man who wouldn't cheat for a poke doesn't, doesn't want one all that bad. <laughs> <laughs> now, was it just a chance encounter that you met this guy or was it? Very much a chance encounter. Wow. I was doing commercials for a car dealership up there uh, in Oklahoma and he just happened to live near there and he happened to be there. It was really an amazing experience. It fascinates me how actors can find somebody like that and draw that character out. Absolutely. You know, and all their intonations and their, you know, hand motions and all that. It's an understated art. It really is. Like, I think a lot of people think it's just something that happens overnight or you see the memes going around. How did you do this? It must just be some born skill you have. And, you know, like, the response is always time and practice. But, you know, it's just, oh, it has to be this, this magical skill you were born with and I'll never have it. You know, it just... No, that's, that's simply not true. I mean, everybody... I would hope would know that. It, Absolutely. I, I don't argue that there's a certain degree of talent mm -hmm. that, you know, that varies from person to person. But right. Ability, that can be taught. It absolutely can. I mean, you just have to have the drive and the passion to want to learn it. Right. Well, hold on. You reminded me of something and now it's escaping my mind. No, there is a thing I remember where Stephen Colbert interviews Robert Duvall. Mm-hmm. And it's not very long. He does it for almost the whole show, I think, but it is one of the most informative interviews you'll ever see concerning acting because basically Robert Duvall says to him, acting is listening. You know, it's listening and responding in that moment. Yep. You know, he's just happens to be the best at it who may have ever lived. I, I don't know. I mean, I think he's the greatest living American actor for my money. Absolutely. And I know the listening and responding and being in the moment was probably one of the biggest things that I took away when I started improv Whatever reason, I guess is my curse, my bad habit, I would always try to be three steps ahead of whoever I was talking to or thinking about where they were going to go, or if I was with a customer or a client, what having this solution to the problem they haven't even named yet. It was overwhelming, but you know, like, 
being able to learn that skill and just being in the moment makes everything so much more organic, so much more relaxing. It changes yeah. everything. Well, you might have gotten a lot of that from wrestling. Could be, yeah, I think so. You know, you always have to be two or three moves ahead of whatever the guy is you're wrestling, and you have to know where you're going to go with it. Right, and if you've done that for over a decade at that point, you know, it's like it's kind of hard to get that out of your system then. Right, and so you stay in the moment, and you move with that. There is something to the divine impulse. I do yep. know that. That's the thing we always seek in voiceover is that lightning in a bottle. Almost always, when we're doing an audition here at the studio, I'll get it right, and once we know we have it right, then we'll always do at least one or two more takes just to see if you can catch the lightning in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Because now you know you have it. Right. You have it, it's in the can, you know you've got it, so you can always have that take. And generally, about, I'd say at least not half the time, you're going to end up with a better take than the one you thought was good. Absolutely, and that's actually something that, uh, that Elise brought to our sessions when we started working together and she would reference you on that quite a bit. You know, it's like, that was great, but let's see if we can get one more. Or that was good, but let's let's try it one more time while we're in that space. Or let's give them something to say no to. You know, just so many different things that she's, I guess, learned from you or learned along the way, but she gives you credit for it. She's brought to that, and it's just been a huge game changer. Well, the audition process, I think, is one, believe it or not, where you're in more control than you think you are. Absolutely. You just got to get out of your own way. That and if you're doing a gig, I'm just saying that in the moment is where the truth is. Mm-hmm. And if you can get to the truth of anything, you're far ahead of, ahead of the game. Absolutely. Uh, when I was saying you have more control than you realize, if you're in a studio and you get it right, it's a very rare director who's going to go, "Yeah, let's try some stuff. <laughs> you right. know, let's let's just go ahead and burn some clock." You know, they're there. You're there because. You don't burn clock. There's not going to be, if you walk in, if you're a professional, there's not going to be 70 takes. Right. You know, you're going to get it in the first two or three, you know, some guys even the first one, and then they move on. But when you're auditioning, you have a real opportunity to experiment and give it more time. You know, I often think, how much time are the other guys I'm competing with spending on this audition? Right. You know, it's the same thing I used to think in wrestling, you know, like, what is the guy doing right now that I'm going to be wrestling in the finals? Is he working out? Is he doing the extra stuff with the weight room? Is he, you know, running the extra mile? Is he as committed as I am? Right. And I hope he isn't. That's definitely the hope, and that's definitely the best mindset to have in that uh, in that kind of position. But did you ever notice, like, whether it was the wrestling or the voiceover that it kind of led to, a, I guess, a sense of perfectionism or a perfectionist mindset where it just it was never good enough or you could always – do it better and it kind of got too far into that now my wife gives me a lot of grief about this all right in my everyday living Mm -hmm. i'm really not a perfectionist not in the slightest it's very rare you know right i have things just so in voiceover that completely changes for me (laughs) i don't know why it just does i mean it has to be exactly right if it's not exactly right i just have to redo it we have to figure it out. We mm-hmm. have to get it right. So, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm pretty anal retentive when it comes to voiceover and things like that. But it kind of reminds me a little bit. Uh, you know, I did some stand-up comedy. Really? And, See, I wasn't yeah, aware of that. Yeah. No, I. <laughs> that's another story entirely. <laughs> but, no, like, like Frank Sinatra used to go into the studio. Mm-hmm. And when he was making a recording, he would be a complete perfectionist. 
everything had to be right down to the last symbol crash. Now, when he performed live, all that went out the window. Right. Everything was to be loose and fun and, you know, ring-a-ding, you know, whatever that thing is, ring-a-ding-a-do or whatever. Yeah. That's right, baby, it's Vegas, ring-a-ding-a, whatever. <laughs> and so he understood the stuff that's going to last forever, which is the stuff put down on tape, has to be exactly right. Yeah. The stuff in the moment is a performance. Again, you know, I would probably point to a lot of comedy is that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, if you're in the studio, you've got to be in there for that reason. But if you're in front of a live crowd, that loose mentality just makes the show that much better because if you're having fun, your crowd's having fun, and everybody picks up on that energy. Right. If you're not having fun, then, then they're not, for sure. Absolutely. So... Going back to being a DJ and everything, how did you get involved with Funimation at that point? Well, I really didn't at that point. When I was a DJ, I was kind of focused on being a DJ. Right. One of my mentors was an incredible voiceover. I actually, believe it or not, wrestled with his son on the same team in high school. Small world. It is a small world. But his name was Bob McGruder. Mm-hmm. His son's name was Larry. And Bob was just a legendary voiceover. And so I always had great respect, but he had also owned radio stations. And I remember coming to him one time, I said, Bob, how do you know when it's time to change jobs? You know, as a disc jockey, how do you know when it's time to move to the next market or a bigger station or whatever? And he goes, Rick, when you cannot stand it one more second, doing what you're doing for the pay you're doing it at, it's time to go. <laughs> and I thought, well, wise words. Yes, it turned out to be very wise. And I ended up kind of moving through radio with that in mind. One of my last gigs was I was an afternoon kitty show host on television mm-hmm. on Channel 11, and I was a morning disc jockey. And I guess they had looked out in the parking lot and they decided to call me Rick Beamer. Okay, so that was my name on the radio and on the kitty show. And I was part of the radio, I was part of a, a team show called Tommy and the Beamer. So we had kind of, I think, imploded a little bit, uh, Tommy and I, which that happens sometimes, yeah. you know, when you're working with people closely and Things get all messed up. It mm-hmm. just happens. And I remember going to Bob, and Bob goes, well, why don't you do voiceover? And I said, what, what voiceover? What do you mean? And he says, you don't make commercials. And stuff. And I said, Bob, nobody could make a living doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my very words. You can't make a living doing commercials. And he, goes, and he started walking me through it. He said, all right, so I'm not just talking about making commercials. There's also voiceover for people's presentations you know there's also company uh, videos and corporate things mm-hmm. he said if you do two or three of these a day it adds up oh yeah and i was like yeah well, okay that kind of makes sense and so he and jerry houston helped me put together a voiceover tape and i had gotten a pretty big golden parachute from the radio station so i thought why not let's give this a shot right i had to be very persistent because the agent that I wanted to represent me did not want to represent me. And I remember I would slide my tape under her door and she would listen to it and go, no, you're not ready yet. <laughs> and so they had already put out the agency reel. And so if you've already done that and you find somebody that's really good and back in that day, you would throw their tape on with the reel. Yeah. And it, that person was called a wild card. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's what the agents called them was a wild card. And so I finally got the tape that she liked. And the very first time I auditioned, 
I got a gig that nobody, this, this particular agency had never hired someone out of Dallas. They had only hired them out of LA or Chicago because they were huge. Right. I got this gig. So that got her attention kind of right off. And then things started to progress from there. And so I became her wild card. And she called me that for the rest of my career. <laughs> <laughs> if I called Nancy Johnson today, she would call me her wild card. I love it. Yeah, she was the best. She was great. How did you stay motivated and not get deterred when she kept saying you weren't ready yet? Like, did she offer you tips on how you could get better or did she just kind of leave it up to you to figure out on your own? It was a little of both. I think she was trying to see if I was going to be serious about it. Right, right. I gotcha. I I think that was part of it. And uh, I was so determined to do it because once I got into it, I thought, you know, I can do this. Mm -hmm. You know, I have this ability. I can do this. You know, you have to. It's weird because when you're on the radio all the time, you tend to talk like somebody on the radio. Right. And I guess uh, I had to switch over from being a radio personality to just being a real human being. Yep. Because real human beings are who they hire for voiceover. It's it's generally not going to be somebody that's talking like this, Jackie. Okay, I've been listening right here in my headphones. <laughs> yep. That's one thing that Elise and I, man, going back to her again, that's that's what we talk about for like all these descriptions that they look for on auditions now is they don't want somebody that sounds professional. They want that natural conversational tone or everyday, you know, everyday person. Well, it's why you see so many actors get hired because they perfected that, even though their voices have become somewhat iconic. Mm-hmm. I mean, you listen to, uh, I guess the one that you asked for the most probably is Sam Elliott. Yeah. Everybody wants Sam Elliott, you know, it's like beef, it's what's for dinner. Man. You know, you get these voices that are so low and you're like, okay, (laughs) not sure I can do that. Right. Uh, Man, that'd be the the million dollar voice though. Well, yeah. And I mean, some guys are just, uh, you know, they just have it, whatever that is. Uh, I hear Matthew McConaughey a lot. Yeah, he's, he tends to get a lot of these voiceovers. And that's kind of, a, to me, has always sucked because movie stars have a leg up on getting a lot of the bigger gigs. Right. That I wish just voiceover guys could get. I mean, you know, because you hear like, uh, I think it's John Hamm from Mercedes. Mm-hmm. You know, just various people. Yeah. And you go, wow, he's great, but wish that could be a voiceover. Absolutely. Give the other guys a chance, too, because they've kind of got, you know, the celebrities already have their slice of the pie. So let somebody else have a chance. You know, maybe that'll uh, maybe that kind of thing will change down the road. It's really hard to say. Well, you asked me before how I ended up doing Dragon Ball Z. Yes. Or or going to Funimation. Mm -hmm. There was a friend of mine who I'm sure nobody in anime has ever heard of named Chris Sabat. Oh, who's that? I mean, who? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. He's this big unknown. Right. I hope he makes it big someday. Of I course. Really I hope he gets a breakthrough moment. But until then, he, you know, he's just been a great guy for me. He's always mm-hmm. been a friend and a great buddy. And, you know, I just appreciate the hell out of him. Oh, yeah. And, and, I, and I love the success that he has had. Because when he started doing this, I had no idea. You know, it just seemed to me like he was in some sort of suspended Japanese world that I would walk into, you know, like when I would go to a studio. Right. <laughs> they always had the latest gadgets. I remember that. But anyway, he said, there's a character over here. I think it'd be really good for you named Deborah. And he said, I really think it's perfect for your voice and what you do. You know, why don't you come over here to Fort Worth and do it? And of course I asked him what it paid. And it was like hardly anything. I was like, I don't know about this. But then uh, 
he said it's going to be really popular with kids. And uh, I had two boys at the time mm-hmm. that were in elementary school. Right. So I thought, well, you know, dad will go over there. It'll impress the kids. So I go over there and I do. That was the first time I did Deborah. And they seemed to like it a lot. And I thought that my boys would be impressed. But when they got to school and they would tell their friends their dad was Deborah, no one believed them. <sighs> of and course. It was crushing. It was crushing to them. You know what I mean? And I still remember this little kid in one of their homerooms coming up to me and he, he, you know, he's just like marching up there, you know, he goes, he goes, you're not really Deborah, are you? I said, yes, Master Bobbity, it is I, Deborah, king of the demons. And I thought this kid was going to wet his pants. I really did. I thought he was going to wet himself right there in the hallway. I love it. I just... I love hearing hearing the stories of these kids that they don't believe so and so or whoever does the voice. Then it actually happens, and it's just like deer oh, yeah. in the headlights. He was exactly. He was dumbfounded. You know, man. I remember one time too when I was reading how the Grinch stole Christmas for one of my kids' classes. Mm-hmm. I started reading it as Boris Karloff. You know, like who the original guy was because. Jim Carrey took the Grinch and he basically made it a bad Sean Connery impression. You know, it's like, that's right, I'm the Grinch. You know, all the Who's down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot. The Grinch who loved us not, the Whoville did not. So I did the original one, which is, you know, all the Who's down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot. But the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. And so I read the book and these kids were just mesmerized. And after it was over, the teacher goes, oh, Mr. Robertson, uh, Normally, you go when they read the book to the kids, they show them the pictures. <laughs> I said, Hey, I'll remember that for next time. Right. Oh, man. It was so funny because nobody said a word. <laughs> they listened to the whole thing cover to cover, and they never said a word. I mean, what more you could you like ask to- for? Yeah, sure would like to see a picture, Mr. Robertson. <laughs> Oh, man. And they even ate the roast beast. <laughs> I remember, though, it was really funny. This is, this is the most passive-aggressive thing you'll ever hear in your life. My son, when he would get mad at me, mm-hmm. he had the Dragon Ball Z video game. And so he would download Deborah and just beat the crap out of it. <laughs> man, that is... Oh, I've never heard of anybody doing that. That is awesome. <laughs> The most passive aggressive thing I've ever heard in my life, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh man. I get I get I get even with you, Dad. <laughs> man, I'll get arthritis at the same time. Right. <laughs> I get even if I get carpal tunnel. You know. <laughs> now, when you actually got in the booth and started recording for this character, did you find it hard to? match the mouth flaps and get into ADR or was it just kind of like second nature thing for you? I had no idea what I was doing. None. That was the the first anime I had ever done. Right. I was a little matching the mouth flaps. Are you kidding? You know, I mean, is that what we do here? And so to me, to start, it was like rubbing my stomach and patting my head. You know, I, I think as you get used to it, it becomes more second nature. But at first you're like, what have I got myself into? Right. Because you have to draw out certain things to make those mouth flaps fit. And I was not ready for, like, in the middle of a session for them to add and take out words. Right. Because you're like, oh, no, it didn't fit, so you need to put this in. Or it didn't fit, so you need to take this out. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) And perfectly. It's a strange process. And I know, like, when I had my first experience with it in in a workshop setting... 
we did it through Zoom, so there was a little bit of lag on that too, and it was just the most frustrating thing in the world. It's like, ah, oh! I so I can't even imagine. Yeah, no, it was. It, yes, I agree. <laughs> As I said, it, it is weird. I think one thing that helped at that time is Deborah as a character is very stylized. Mm-hmm. You know, and I try to explain this to people, and that is, if you're going to play a bad guy, inherently he has to be more likable than the good guy. Yep. I mean, for it to really work. I always cite, like, you know, a Jack Nicholson or Heath Ledger as the Joker in Batman. Mm-hmm. Perfect example. liking them much better. I remember the Jack Nicholson, you know, <laughs> I love the line, too. He goes, where does he get those wonderful toys? <laughs> Talking about Batman. And when he's getting his tie in the mirror, he's straightening his tie, and she goes, you're looking pretty good tonight, Jack. He goes, I don't recall my asking. <laughs> <laughs> it's just all the, again, it goes back to what you said earlier, using the voice to, to say something to the girls. You know, it's just they say and they get away with all the things that sometimes you wish you could in everyday life. Yeah. It's just well, something think, about again, it. I think like part of what did Heath Ledger in is having to go where he went to do the Joker was such a dark place. Oh yeah. Because, you know, he was really doing it like you would do method acting. If I do voiceover, it's going to be like, you know, I'm going to take his and I'm going to cut him into little pieces. You know, the he had that kind of mania to it. He was always just kind of on the edge of being jacked up. Had the little ticks, the little nervous ticks, and everything right. that went with it. But when you went in so deep as he did to that character, I remember I came out of the movie starting to do that impression. My wife made fun of me for that. But I've, I've done that a couple of times. I did it with Forrest Gump. I did it with him, you know, where you come out and you're just automatically in that mode. Well, I, I wrote this commercial for, I think it was a car dealership. And I realized at that time what a dark place he had had to go to. Oh, yeah. And it was scary. It was it, like, wow, geez. I, I respect everything he put into that, but I just, I could not fathom how deep he went into it and then not even being able to pull himself out of it. Right. Well, because part of it was just being a masochist. Yep. I mean, the more Batman beat him up, the more he liked it. Exactly. What a frustration if you're Batman. What you works know? than everybody else does not work for this guy, so now what do I do? If you're playing a bad guy, you have to embrace evil and love it. Absolutely. And it can't just be, you know, it can't just be a one-dimensional thing. Like, there's all these layers where you may be wrong, but in your mind, you think you're right and what you're doing is justified. It's, it's what's got to be done. Right. When I'm at Comic-Cons, a lot of times when I'm, signing something i'll always write you know stay evil (laughs) (laughs) i love it because if you're going to be a bad guy you kind of have to live in that area that's true you know there's little shades of gray here and there but still that's why i always liked uh, yomi and yu yu Hakusho. (laughs) that's like my my one a and one b for like the characters you voiced right there and it's like almost two sides of the same coin but so similar at the same time too well i'll tell you one thing and it's funny you'd say that because the borough was very purposely evil mm-hmm. Yomi was casually mean he's just casual about it you know like right. one of my favorite things is when I'm talking to a guy and I just calmly crush another guy's skull you know it's no big deal to Yomi yep <laughs> or know? fighting his own son even you know it's right. just like just so yeah. casual so like nonchalant even right and I think that's part of what comes from being a blind martial artist uh, you know you would have to be so aware of every single thing going on around you and nothing would freak you out right you know there would be no fear shown ever because you just wouldn't freak out and i think that all circles back to the phrase you mentioned earlier about just being in the moment 
But it's, uh, I mean, it's just amazing, like, the depths and the levels you brought to that character with everything that's going on. You know, it's like, with Yomi specifically, you can't tell if he's a bad guy or not, even, and you know, until he does something like that. He's almost like a peaceful sensei until, like you said, he crushes somebody's skull or he's fighting his son, you know? It's like, it's, a. I think uh, part of what developed that was the way that Chris Sabat and I recorded it. Mm-hmm. Normally, as you know, you know, like for Deborah, it, you're a Funimation and you're in this really nice booth and you know you've got the you know little tv thing there to watch the characters and doing all this stuff right yoni chris and i literally sat in the hallway of my studio at the time and we just kind of went back and forth you know with him directing me that's why i think it was a lot more casual because it was recorded to be in a more casual setting in a more casual tone than something if you're in the studio and you're just and it almost perfectly fit that character too because his expressions almost never changed even though like you said he's blind he doesn't open his eyes but his mouth and everything is just so almost stone-faced or a small smile but it's all still so casual and serene makes it very difficult for artists to do i've had a young lady who i think is a tremendous artist uh who has been working on it but i can tell that it's kind of you you sense a frustration in her that the face isn't more animated. Right. Because that's kind of what sells pictures at a Comic-Con. You get Deborah, for example, and, you know, he's very dramatic. And then, you know, Yomi's just not that way. Right. It's not that way. And, I mean, I can imagine, too, like, the frustration with the emotions you have to convey because it does have to match the, those facial expressions. Because if he's stone-faced, like, you try to be over-the-top angry, it there's a big clash there that just doesn't work. You can't be over the top angry. Right. Because if you were, you'd be out of control. And Yomi's never out of control. Exactly. So, you know, that's why I said is if Dean Martin were a villain, I guess. (laughs) 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 Uh, You know, be probably like that. Where everything is very cool and very deliberate. Absolutely. Uh, Now... On the subject of cool and deliberate and being in control, um, when it comes to auditions, and I even like you referenced your your wrestling background again, what is the other guy doing? Is he working as hard as I am? I mean, like, is he doing this extra thing to to get the leg up? Is it easy once you send an audition or once you do an audition to keep yourself in that mindset of, this is what I got, I gave everything I could to it, or do you still kind of just let it, you know, like, wander for a little bit, you know, like, is somebody else doing it better than me? Or how many people are? Act- am I actually going up against? You know, like, does that kind of doubt and worry ever creep in? No. And I say that because all voiceover is like a golf shot. Mm-hmm. You hit the best shot you can, and you put it behind you, and you go to the next shot. Oftentimes, I'll be surprised when I get booked because I've put it so far out of my mind. Right. I forgot I even did the audition. And I've had that happen on many occasions, not just one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, well, wow, I forgot about that. I did audition for that, didn't I? And sometimes it's so bad that I have to go back to my engineer and get a voice print for what I did because I really don't have a recollection of the audition because we do so many. Right. And so if you're going to hang on to it, I don't know how anybody would do that anyway because it, it would eat you alive. I mean, I could be in the wrong business. Yeah, it literally will eat you alive from the inside if you let it. And I know... That's something I'm still relatively new to voiceover. You know, I'm still within my first couple of years of it. But over the last year, especially since starting improv and being in that moment, it's become a lot easier to just kind of 
submit and forget and just go on to the next because if they keep coming in, you can't keep harboring on the one that you just sent because that's already done. And, right. you know, it's in the past. There's nothing else you can do at this point. So, yeah, it's like to me, somebody gave me a definition of guilt. Mm-hmm. Guilt is thinking you could have done anything better. Well, obviously, if you could have, you would have. Right. There's really nothing to feel guilty about as you move on. Man, that's you powerful. That, just, that's powerful. Well, it's true. Yeah. I mean, it's like the past is perfect because it never changes. Exactly. Never the past. And so there's only the moment we're in and whatever lies ahead. And so to dwell or feel guilty or, or, or whatever about the past is kind of kind of like jealousy. It's a wasted emotion. Yep. I mean, it does nothing. I mean, it doesn't even do any good for yourself. You know, it's just extra stress, extra burden, and extra baggage you have to carry. Right, right. And, and again, nothing exceeds that definition of thinking you could have done anything better. Right. That is it. That's that's the only reason anybody ever feels guilty. I should have done this or I could have done that. Well, no. You did the best you could in the moment, and that's what you did. Exactly. And I think more people just need to be aware of that and keep reassuring themselves of that to get over that funk, too. Because I know that was a big problem of mine, like even going back to the wrestling thing. You know, it's like if you lose or if something goes wrong, you can't sit there and dwell on it. You've just got to keep going on to the next because the next thing is going to come whether you're ready for it or not. So I, I used to get amused at people who would tell me that they were searching for the will of God. What is the will of God in this situation? What is the will of God in that situation? And I want to go, first of all, if God is God, and I mean God, God of the universe, whatever, Mm -hmm. you can't get out of his will. It's already said and done. The movie's in the can. If it wasn't, you wouldn't have a book of Revelation. Exactly. So if the movie's not already in the can, nothing you do today is going to surprise God. Nothing you do tomorrow is going to shock him. And like, oh, he's out of my will now. No, you're God. So God knew you'd do it. Yep. He'll always be his will. Yep. It's funny to me, the theologian Martin Luther mm-hmm. wrote a lot of books. On his deathbed, he asked that every book that he ever wrote be burned, except for Bondage of the Will. <laughs> I mean, you know, so that tells you kind of on that level where he was thinking. Right. I mean, that, that you really can't get out of God's will. You know, we always want to believe that something is outside of it. Mm-hmm. I used to love the fact that there were a group of verses in the Bible that were the least studied verses I've ever heard. In other words, if people really thought about that verse, they would go, oh, well, I didn't, I never considered that. There's a verse in Isaiah, I believe it's in the 46th chapter. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure. And it says, is there a light in the city except that the Lord has lit it? For I, the Lord, create the light, and I create the darkness. I create good, and I create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Well, most people go, oh, why on earth would God create evil? Obviously, if he's God, he knew it was going to be around. Yep. Why did he create us in such a way that if this didn't have resistance, we wouldn't be able to develop a muscle? It's resistance throughout your life that develops the muscles that you're going to need to able to live a healthy life moving forward. Exactly. And it's it's funny how everything can get so deep and so I don't even know. I guess just deep is probably still the best word. So deep and so insightful, but then it all comes back to something so basic and it's just Well truth is simple. Yeah. Always has been, always will be. You know absolutely is. Uh, you know, your most basic truths are your most simple. 
I, I think one of my favorite things I ever had a friend say, one of my best friends is a guy named Doug Duncan. <laughs> he said, you know, Rick, things really are as they appear. <laughs> and think about that. Most of us don't really think that way. Yep. We really don't. Uh, we, we think for just a second, we get that moment of truth that goes, oh, this might be what this is really about. And then we immediately start talking ourselves out of it. We all know because we've met that creep. Mm-hmm. You know, and you go, oh, man, I'm just being a judgmental jerk. That person's not really a creep. Cut to a year or two later, and the person has shown themselves to you to be a full-blown creep. Yep. (laughs) And you're like, why didn't I listen to myself? I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Right. I listened to myself. I should have. I mean, your your first instinct's almost always correct, so. Like almost a thousand percent, yeah. Uh, Somebody once said, once you stop being in that moment, you're then in Satan's half second. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, where you start going, oh my God, what is this? You know, it, it can't be the way I think it is, but it generally is. That's true. I mean, it's very true, but we're so good at talking ourselves out of it or second guessing everything that right. it just it takes... we always want to judge things in the moment. I remember Doug also said one time, he said, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yes, 100%. You know, Loose perspective. I used to say suicide is the last act of a control freak. <laughs> you know, that's a oh man. See, that's a that's another good way to look at. I, I not not a good way, but right up to how they die. Yeah. And and again, what we're all doing is hopefully forming that muscle. Right. Yes, there's going to be against this everywhere we turn, you know. But that's the thing that's going to create the muscle that allows us to be strong enough to press forward. Absolutely so, is. I guess from a philosophical standpoint, but. How has that happened practically? Well, again, you know, to be a voiceover, you have to hear a lot of no's and you have to be happy when you get the yeses. Exactly. If I could give anybody some advice, it'd be that, you know, just ignore the no's and ignore the negatives and, you know, pay close attention to what you did right. Yep. Because I guarantee uh, when it comes to voiceover, I could pull any bum off the street and he could tell you 14 things you were doing wrong. What we all need to know is what we're doing right so we can do it and do more of it. You know, you may be one of the most talented people in the world, but if you can't take that criticism or you're only being fed the negatives, you may miss out on your calling and you just give up and, you know, you're you're done because you couldn't take that. Again, I there, was a, there was a thing, and I wish I could quote it. I can't, but I invite anybody to look it up. It was a quote by Calvin Coolidge, and it was on Bob Magruder's wall. And I understand now why he had it up, and it's called Press On. And it was uh, a thing that Calvin Coolidge had said. You know, in a sense, he's saying, press on, nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Nothing is more common than an educated derelict. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. like, basically what he's saying is that your determination alone is omnipotent. Right. It's the only thing that's going to allow you to overcome what you need to overcome to do what you do. Especially in today's day and age where with social media, everybody has an opinion, right, wrong, positive, negative, indifferent. You know, you just got to be able to push on through it. I wonder sometimes how I would have responded, and I don't know, to being a disc jockey in the age of social media. It must be incredibly difficult. I can't even Uh, imagine. Well, yeah, because every single single thing you say is being scrutinized publicly. Mm Mm-hmm. I was so glad I got into radio at a very, very young age. I was, uh, I guess, 19 when I had my first full-time radio job. Wow. 
we were growing up in front of the public. Mm-hmm. I remember I, I was in my early 20s in San Antonio, and I was like, at that time, the highest rated disc jockey there. So everything that I was doing was me just trying to grow up. Yeah. And it, it, and I had a microphone on me for four hours a day. Uh, I remember I used to do a team show with myself. Okay. It was called Rick Austin, which is what they had changed my name to at that point. It was Rick Austin and Mr. Bill. You know, I'd be talking into the microphone as Rick. I'd be talking over here as Mr. Bill. All right. <laughs> and so you put him in another side of the room by turning your head. And that's the way it worked. This is an incredibly popular show. And I was signing autographs at a mall one time. I'll never forget this as long as I live. And this little boy comes up to me as I'm signing the autograph. And he goes, I hate Mr. Rick, but I love Mr. Bill. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and no, no, I laughed to him. I laughed at him and said, I said, kid, I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> how did he respond to that? He didn't understand what I was saying. <laughs> He was of like, course. Oh, really? You know, like what I was saying is there was a lot of self loathing as I was growing up. Oh, yeah. On the radio, because yes, you did have a character that everybody loved and that you were just trying to be you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you, you were going to be open for a lot of criticism. And that's why I said, I, I don't know how it would have dealt at that day and time, you know, where I was still taking criticism seriously. I guess it's, it's something that comes with age, I guess. I don't know, because it seems like the younger we are, the more sensitive and hot-headed and stubborn we are, but the older we get, the more we tend to mellow out. Oh, yeah. I, I say that. There's some things I'm more mellow about and probably some oh. things I'm less mellow about. Of course. Criticism in and of itself does not bother me now to the degree that it once did. You know, when, If you don't know who you are, and as, as a young man, you're looking to try and find out who you're going to become and who mm-hmm. you are you're more sensitive to the slings and arrows of what other people who are not in the arena may say. Absolutely. Like my father used to say, he goes, when you're young, everything's gray. When you get old, when you get old, it gets very black and white. (laughs) (laughs) That's very true. I mean, it's very true. It is true. It absolutely is true. I mean, you know, there's, there's certain things that I, I can't be sold anymore, I guess. Right. No, I, I get that 100%. And it's just, Man, I'm, I'm just blown away with all these little nuggets of wisdom that you've dropped here tonight. It's so amazing. Well, you call it wisdom. I call it what, it, I call it what I've been through. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, and stuff, yeah. and stuff like that. Like you said, there's things I didn't even know, but just some of the, the brief little sprinklings of things we discussed, you know, when we talked on the phone was exactly why I wanted to have you as a guest here. Like, there's so much learn, to learn from you that, I hope everybody listening to this, whether they're you know in voiceover, in voice acting, or some form of acting, or just in everyday life, can can pick up from that. You know, take something that may help better their life. You know. Yeah. Well, anytime you can help better anybody's life, you're ahead of the game. Absolutely. Really, when you think about it. That's what we should all be doing anyway. Yep. I mean, that's uh, look out for your fellow man. If I have a sadness for the age we live in, it's it's so it's become so divisive. Absolutely. You know, it makes me miss a time when. I guess it wasn't so divisive. I guess that's one thing I will say. This is going to make me seem like such an old fart, but I'm sorry. I am. <laughs> uh, you're uh, fine. When I was younger, as a disc jockey and other things, if you wanted to have your opinion heard publicly, you had to earn your place at that table. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, you know, any crankhead can get on and spout their opinion, and, and there's no blowback. Absolutely. Back in the day, back in my day, Oh, you kids, get out of my yard. <laughs> um, back in my day, if you will, 
<laughs> you not only had to earn your place at the table, but then you had to be accountable for what you said. I mean, it, it was not something that was taken lightly that, you know, Twitter is such a garbage dump right now. Mm-hmm. And that's why what's sad to me is when I read it, like you were talking about before, there's a lot of wisdom in Twitter in some of the things that people say. And sometimes it blows my mind. Right. But along with it, you know, you have to weed through all that garbage. Yep, you sure do. I mean, that's a... Uh... That's something I was talking about with my guest last week. It's just a lot of the stuff that's said on Twitter in the negative, you know, in the negative genre is almost nine times out of 10, 99.9% of the time, something that those people would not say if they were having a face-to-face conversation with that person. Like you said, there's no blowback, there's no accountability, and it's not good for the world overall because it just adds into that negativity. Well, and I'm sorry, but if real human beings say stuff to people's faces mm-hmm. absolutely i mean it's funny i look at people like that really were groundbreakers that i got to work with the first one coming to mind uh, I, I remember when i started out doing stand-up it was in a club in colorado springs called jeff valdez's comedy corner and i thought i was a very mediocre comedian but what i didn't know is i was playing with the 27 yankees that everybody around me was that good. There was a waitress who'd come down from Denver who was there most weekends. Mm-hmm. Uh, about a off called Roseanne Barr. Oh, yeah. And then there was Sinbad. And then there was uh, Felicia Michaels, who wasn't even a comic at the time. She was Jeff Valdez's girlfriend. There was Jeff himself, who has since become a Hollywood producer. Mm-hmm. You know, there were all these guys who were super, super talented. You know, Emo Phillips. Uh, the who's who. Judy Tenuta. Yeah, I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, and my favorite, of course, is no longer with us. I'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> but <laughs> I remember that just them trying out their material. I remember I was I was uh, emceeing one night, and uh, Roseanne was widening up her act. And she goes, you know, a lot of people think that I'm really macho. I have women come up to me and say, you know, Roseanne, you're like a man. You know, you talk like a man and you act like a man. You're just so macho. I tell those women, you can suck my dick. (laughs) And then she comes off stage and she goes to the green room and she goes, Rick, you think that was too harsh? (laughs) (laughs) I'll never forget that as long as I live. Man. You think that was too harsh? I don't know. You know, (laughs) I, don't, I said, I don't know, Roseanne. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but, you, know, you get to hear these jokes that are now almost legendary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you heard them for the first time. Yeah. I mean, they were being worked out. I remember one of my favorite jokes she did was, she goes, I have three kids. I had one on the pill, one on the diaphragm, and one on the IUD. And you know... I have my suspicions about that kid with the IUD because they never could find it. And the kid could pick up HBO. <laughs> Man. It was good. <laughs> that was. And that's a, uh, God, that is like a who's who like that you were around. That's amazing. Yeah, so no wonder I thought I was mediocre. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> I didn't know I was playing with the 27 Yankees, you know, <laughs> but you hung in there though. Good Lord. Yeah. You got to hang in there, you know. Absolutely. That's the whole thing. But you know, it was it was a fun time because there wasn't social media, right? 
I mean, who knows what would have happened? I mean, you know, first of all, your jokes get told before you can go tell them at another club. Mm-hmm. It's on TMZ. It's on social media. It's trending, whatever it may be. Right. You learn the hard way. Yep. You, know? you sure do. I remember, I, I don't know how this would have played out on social media, but I got sued once by Rodney Dangerfield. Really? Yeah. I was doing a Park Inns commercial. So, as Rodney, I go, how did, how did that go? I said, uh, so I'm leaving Parkins, you know, a little respect, a little dignity, and about 12 of these little bars of soap. Yeah, have one on me. So at the end, the guy comes back and he goes, uh, celebrity voice impersonated. And I come back and I go, really? You know, that guy's not a real announcer? He sounded so good. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> they, they sued us for making fun of the tag. Oh, oh my God. Man. Yeah. I did not I did not know I was going to play on, on NBC in New York. You know, I mean, I didn't right. know it was a national thing, so wow. I thought it was late and uh, was not safe. Anyway, <sighs> I found out about it. I'm, <laughs> I remember I was at Christmas with my family in Abilene, Texas. I'm watching uh, Entertainment Tonight, and it says, uh, a Dallas voice actor, along with Parkins uh, or whatever, is being sued by Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm the only guy that's done that impression. That would be, oh, no. Oh. Me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I haven't oh, even been man. served, and these guys are knowing it over here in Entertainment Tonight. You know? Oh man, it's the kind of thing that happens. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I I can't even imagine that. It's like yeah, it was a bombshell. And again, the lawyers are the only ones that ever win those things, right? I mean, yep. I loved Rodney. I really did. I had seat one, row one, to a Rodney Dangerfield concert once. And a bunch of me, me and a bunch of other guys dressed like him. You know, we had the black suits and the skinny red tie. Yeah. He looks down and he goes, who are these guys? Groupies? <laughs> Man. That's the kind of groupie I get with my luck. No respect, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man, that is such an amazing story. And I had no idea that, oh, there's so much I just learned about you in this last hour here. That's amazing. Like I said, it's a sign of a misspent youth is what it is. <laughs> I'd say it turned out all right, though. Yeah, it turned out okay, but, you know, at the time it didn't look like it was going to. <laughs> I can only imagine. Like I said, Bob, how am I going to make a living just doing commercials? You know? <laughs> and here we are now. Yeah, here man, we are. I just, ah, man, I can't thank you for, for coming on here and being so engaging and so just willing to share everything is so awesome. Like, and I'm, I'm sitting here, you can see me on camera. I've just got a huge smile on my face. Like it's, this has been a riot for this entire hour here. And man, I just can't thank you enough, Rick. Hey, you're, you're welcome. Flan. anytime, man. Anytime. I'm definitely going to have to have you back here in the near future. And I mean, is there anything um, that you want to leave our audience with? Cause I mean, that's kind of a high note to go out on. I don't know if we can go any higher than that, but. I'm going to trust your judgment if there's anything you want to end us on. Well, probably the old Monty, Monty Python thing, you know. If you've had half as much fun as I've had, I've had twice as much fun as you. So, you know, <laughs> there you go. That's it right there. Well, Rick, is um, where can our listeners follow you on social media? Actually, I'll leave you with the words my father left me before college, okay? And this is true wisdom. He said, never eat at a place called Mom's. Never shoot pool with a man named Fats. Never play cards with a man called Doc, and never spit in a man's face unless his mustache is on fire. So that's my advice. Ah, sound, sound advice right there. Sound advice. Sound advice. (laughs) 
Well, Rick, where can our listeners follow you on social media and keep up with what you're doing? Oh, gosh. I have social media things, and I don't even know what they are. I know I have a, a thing on Facebook. So I think they could find me on Facebook. Tell you um, what, we'll put the uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. That way, they can just keep up with you that way. Right? There's an antic productions thing, and I think there's a Rick Robertson uh, VO page or something. You know? Okay. You can tell I'm really into social media. <laughs> <laughs> you're uh, you're in that upper echelon, man. It's uh, it seems like everybody's so dependent on that, but you're up here away from it, and that makes it so much easier, so much less stressful. I don't know if I'm way up here, away from it, or way down here, not caring. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle. Yes, we're in the middle. <laughs> anyway, Flynn, it's been a lot of fun. Absolutely, anyway. Rick. I, I second that, and I can't wait to talk to you again. And, guys, thank you all for tuning in today. Thank you to our sponsors. If you like what we're doing over here, make sure you like and subscribe. Share it with your family. Share it with your friends. Tell anybody that will listen. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and we'll talk to you again next week. I know you hear me. Hey, this is Jimmy Street, host of the Live and in Color with Wolfie D podcast. Hear the life and times of professional wrestler Wolfie D. From his times in the territories with PG-13 to his times in WWE, ECW, WCW, TNA, and more. Nothing is off limits and nothing will be held back. Available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all major podcast formats.